Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line, don't let her into the congressman's office late at night, it's Danielle Hanley. <laughs> She's dangerous. <laughs> what nefarious things have you been through? This is the one exception to don't hire Danielle and John as spies. <laughs> Danielle needs to infiltrate the congressman's office. You may be able to. I think I could be quiet. Like, and I think I could, I think the one thing as a spy I could do is like sneak around. (laughs) Keeping secrets and double identities and wigs that like really I couldn't do. Keeping it all straight. Like the wigs would not be a problem for me because my bald (laughs) head is, uh, you know, like you're going to take a lot of glue, but otherwise I think, I think we're in good shape. We don't have the, you know, we have to cover up Carrie Russell's incredible hair problem. I just, I know that I would be bad at like all the rest of that, but I would be great at like sneaking in and staying quiet. I'm not sure I would want to listen to people have sex in the other room. Like that's where I draw the line. Do a picture of Ronald Reagan kind of. No, thank you. <laughs> all right. What are we here to do? All, all of this and many, 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 many more things happen many in American season two, episode six, Behind the Red Door, directed by Charlotte Sealing and written by Melissa James Gibson. And Danielle has the IMDb summary for us. Yeah. So the IMDb summary for season two, episode six is that a dangerous naval officer becomes the key to Philip and Elizabeth's mission, as well as a potential threat to their family's safety. Lucia, a Sandinista intelligence officer working with the Jennings, is tasked with getting Elizabeth access to Capitol Hill. Stan struggles with the potential cost of protecting Nina. All in all, a good summary, and this gives us a good sense of what's happening. It sure does. Now, the one thing it doesn't give us the best sense of is all of these are kind of plot dynamics that are happen happening yeah. in this episode, and yet there's a very close relationship between death and desire that is kind of Absolutely. driving the deeper currents of this episode. So let's perhaps, Danielle, start with desire and kind of what do you think that viewing this episode through the frame of desire kind of tracking the way that desire is circulating enables us to see or enables us to think about. Yeah. I mean, I think that desire is a really helpful lens through which to approach this episode. Spoiler alert. Danielle suggested that we do this (laughs) because she's smart. I was trying to be coy. (laughs) Um, But I think it's a helpful lens. And I think what it does is it illuminates three things and then maybe we'll get into some, some more along the way, but I think it illuminates the the relationship or the sort of what unfolds between Philip slash Clark and Elizabeth. Oof, Wild. It also illuminates the dynamics between Lucia and Elizabeth yeah. in an interesting way. And I think it also brings us back to think a bit about um, Claudia's role in this episode and sort of the reveal at the end. So yeah, maybe let's your favorite take- character. I can't. We'll get into it in Danielle Dossier, but I was angry that Claudia was back. (laughs) Uh, But maybe let's start with uh, Philip slash Clark and Elizabeth. Yeah. And so one of the dynamics that's happening here is how Elizabeth is understanding or more accurately not understanding her desire for Philip and her desire for Clark and I don't think she knows whether or not those are the same things yeah. or different things. And certainly Philip doesn't know what or how he's supposed to kind of track the desire that Elizabeth has for Clark. And this is in the context of 
a very hot scene between Philip is Philip and Elizabeth is Elizabeth at the beginning of the episode, right? Yeah. So like Philip helps take Elizabeth's like knee high boots off and then they have sex. Yeah. And then it takes like a gigantic fucked up turn from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, so just a couple of things to, to sort of like poke us or prod us a bit farther here is to your point about like, does Elizabeth know, does Philip know, like, how are they supposed to react to this? I actually, I, I agree with that, but I would, I want to take us a step further because I, I was thinking in watching, um, in, in sort of watching Elizabeth consistently like bring up Clark and bring up Clark, the sex animal and da, 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 da. I was thinking about how, bizarre it must be for Elizabeth to exist in a state of desiring, yeah. right? Like, especially vis-a-vis Philip, right? Or even vis-a-vis one of his alter, alter egos, alter, like, spy identities. Because for so long, for her, sex is part of the job. And sex with Philip is even part of the job. Yeah. And, like, this show opens with a shift in that dynamic. So I wonder if part of the, like, I don't know how to navigate this of Elizabeth and Philip both comes from the fact that like desire actually for most of their relationship, essentially until now has not been, has not had a structuring function. Right. That's a great point, Danielle. And I'm also thinking here that Elizabeth lost her most, perhaps most genuine relationship or at the very least her second most genuine relationship when Gregory died in last season. So as kind of, as you said, structuring events for the way that desire is flowing in this episode, there is, yes, what is happening with Elizabeth and Philip, but also Elizabeth responding not only to what happened to her at the end of season one or what happened to Lane and Emmett at the beginning of this season, but also to what happened to Gregory towards the end of last season as well. So her shifting in and out of, self-knowledge or self-reflection or self-control about desire, which is a characteristic of her path in this episode, I think, is I think working in relation to both of those dynamics. Because like at first she's very coy, she's very playful, she's very jokey about, yeah, about wanting to experience sex with Clark. And then obviously like it becomes tragic and violent. Yeah. And, and like very quickly. Right. And like, again, to come back to like, what does Elizabeth know? What's intentional? What's not intentional? Like, I think that part of this is she has constructed for herself a version of Clark that is different from Philip. And, and I wonder if part of that is like Clark needs to be different from Philip so that Mm. his relationship with Martha is not real for Elizabeth. Um, and that part of what Philip is navigating is also like, where do those things overlap? Right. That that's part of what he's struggling with too. Especially because Philip very clearly says, Martha is not my wife to Elizabeth when Elizabeth makes a joking, sarcastic, sly reference to that in, you know, their like post-coital scene where Liz, where Philip like still has all his clothes on and Elizabeth is totally naked. very angry about that. I was like, first of all, give us naked Philip. Second of all... And like, it's not like the show is hesitant to like show us, or Matthew Reese hesitant to show us his ass like at other points in the Americans. But. Like if you're not going to give us racquetball, give us... <laughs> <Philip>. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but I, yeah, I was, I was, I was angry about the male gaze in that scene. Yeah. Um, because I think the show in general does such a good job of at least troubling mm-hmm. or challenging the male gaze or, or like the way the male gaze is articulated through the camera. Yeah. But to go to the, the substance of your point a bit more, like you're right. Philip says like, she's not my wife. In fact, that echoes something that he said to Elizabeth at the end of the last episode when he comes back before they sort of like cuddle up together on the couch. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth's like, I was with your wife or like sort of like flippantly. And he says the same thing. She's not my wife. Right. Like that, that question of if, if something that Elizabeth is sort of like working through in this episode is like, what does, what or who does she desire? What does it mean to for her to desire something. Cause I think yeah. that that's even like at work here. I think the question for Philip is a little bit different because I think I read Philip as someone who, who desires, right. And, and who sometimes acts on those desires and other times shuts those desires down, mm-hmm. especially vis-a-vis Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. But I think that the interaction with Elizabeth and the like prolonged interaction throughout the episode around this question of Clark and Martha and, and like being a sex animal, et cetera, et cetera. I think what this does for, for Philip is like bring back up a question that Yossi asked him last week in their, in their back and forth, which like that question of like, is your face, your face, are your kids, your kids. And I think like when Philip pulls the wig off, pulls the Clark wig off and is just staring at himself and is like, visibly shaken i think the question there is what does sort of the assault on clark's assault on elizabeth maybe we'll call Mm -hmm. it i think that's the right terminology yeah right what does that mean about who philip is and and whether his face is his face and along the lines of had he not been wearing the clark wig and thus been able to dissociate and I use that in like a colloquial term rather than a medicalized term, but like to dissociate from his normal persona as Philip. Like if if Philip was truly in that room, would he have done what he had done to Elizabeth? And presumably the answer is no. Right. But I think like the scene in the bathroom afterwards yeah. raises the question of whether the answer is actually no. And I and think it's not, it's not right. 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 <laughs> right. And it's like, not. and it's, it seems like that's the thing that, that he, that he's struggling with. If Elizabeth is struggling with articulating what she desires and also desiring like full stop. Yeah. Because Elizabeth, they're in, I suppose it's either one of the safe houses or the apartment that Philip had for a little while back last season. It has to be somewhere that, like, it has to be somewhere that isn't their house because, like, Philip can't be in the Clarkwig in his home. Yeah, obviously. And and that would presumably not be okay with Elizabeth's, like, apparent fantasy that she thinks she has. Yeah, yeah. To have sex with Clark. Yeah. Um, you know, and they're there, and Philip slash Clark like starts to more lovingly kiss and hold, and like about to start to go down on Elizabeth. And Elizabeth yeah. is like, "No, I want you to uh, no, I want Clark. You're not being Clark. Just be Clark, right?" At which point, like Philip kind of violently flips her over, and then I think assaults her is probably the yeah. terminology to use. Yeah, which is. A repudiation by Philip in that moment, like of Elizabeth, 
Yeah. And also a repudiation of himself at yeah. the same time. Yeah. And I think like the, the, again, the thing is, is like, how does Elizabeth know who Clark is? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, she, I, I feel like she barely knows who Philip is in like, she's getting to know Philip. We've watched that unfold, but like, she doesn't know who Clark is. Like mm-hmm. this Clark is, is in part who Philip is like, away from and apart from Elizabeth. And I think that that is like a fundamental, it's not a misunderstanding because Elizabeth on some level has to understand that, but it's like a fundamental disconnect to assume that Philip could take on the Clark persona with Elizabeth when like functionally it, it like it is a product of their separation. Right. And thus points to Elizabeth's perhaps suspicion is the right word that Clark is closer to Philip than any of when she has sex with a target or someone that they're entrapping or whatever, that Philip and Clark are closer together than than Elizabeth and any of the personas, disguises, characters she takes on to do that. Well, and I think this is where your um, injecting of Gregory into this conversation is actually incredibly useful because like one thing that to me strikes me as different between Elizabeth's various encounters and the like Martha Clark situation is that Martha is this like prolonged contact, right? It is a, I mean, they're, they're married, which again, like still so wild, right? It is a, a a constant going back to the parallel that Elizabeth has for that, at least as we've seen is Gregory is a real Mm -hmm. like relationship with someone. And so I think like Elizabeth, I think the unease comes from the only, like what a one-off using sex to manipulate is something Elizabeth understands well. And we see this, and maybe this is a good way to transition into thinking a little bit about Elizabeth and Lucia and some of their, their conversation. We see some of, we start to see some of the walls that Elizabeth has built around relationships that involve desire Mm -hmm. articulated in her conversation, conversation with Lucia and thinking back on the like, Elizabeth Gregory, Clark, Martha, Elizabeth Clark, Philip, like you can see where those walls are actually working as obstacles to something, something different. Yeah. And let's go there, but I kind of make one more minor point about Philip and Elizabeth first is that in the very initial scene of them having sex in their bedroom as Philip and Elizabeth, in which there is love and there is a more, more genuine, less violent form of desire. Yeah. Um, there's a strange like cutting back and forth there between them and Stan and like the most sterile, <laughs> flat, emotionless, claustrophobic dinner with uh, <laughs> with Matthew and Sandy and like the doors and the literal walls of their houses and yeah. the color red. So Sandy has painted the door red. The Jennings have red shutters. So there's a lot of connections and juxtapositions going on there. And another kind of set of juxtapositions is that 
Philip and Elizabeth have sex. They're cuddling afterwards. And not only is Elizabeth doing this like jokey, why wouldn't have sex with Clark bit, but they're also talking about the Sandinista revolution. They're also talking about Nicaragua. They're also talking about the Lyric mission and all of those things. So they're even in like this moment of some act of like genuine love and sexual desire, they still can't get away from the missions, which I think is another way that, you know, to use a phrase you've brought up and then explained a couple different times how these desires are structured or how these desires are constrained or what walls have to be or are in fact put up around desire. Yeah. I, I like fully love that analysis. I'm laughing a little bit because my notes say, Stan is catatonic. The door yeah. is red, question mark. But I think, like, <laughs> it, it gets at precisely what you're highlighting, which is, like, the, the like, intense juxtaposition between, like, the experience that Stan is having that, like, arguably has sensory, like, uh, brightness or, or, like, sensory circulation, at least, And, but he's not experiencing any of it. And just like the way in which desire is infused into all of these different uh, pieces of the interactions between Elizabeth and Philip. Yeah. And so let's kind of, to your point, then go to talk about Lucia and Lucia and Elizabeth some. Do it. Where here to the relationship between desire and death or desire and violence is very closely tied. So it's like, I think it's worth mapping out what this plan is and how it happens is that Lucia is seeming to have caught feelings, quote unquote, for Carl on some extent, but not a lot. (laughs) Um, And Carl is the congressman's aide, congressman on the intelligence committee's aide, who Lucia is seducing by masquerading as a political science graduate student, which Daniel and I have discussed earlier on. And, you know, we have feelings about, we've caught feelings about that point. Yes. (laughs) And so anyway, the plan is that Elizabeth is going to uh, ask Lucia to seduce Carl in the congressman's office after hours at the Capitol so that he can be distracted enough and Lucia can like leave the door open. So Elizabeth can sneak in and get the files on uh, Marshall Eagle on this uh, situation in of training the Nicaraguan Contras, right? To yeah. the Sandinista government. After which Elizabeth not so subtly tells Lucia to kill Carl. Yeah. Not so subtly. Yeah. <laughs> And Lucia basically is like, like, no, she, she pushes back. She doesn't want to kill him. At which point Elizabeth realizes like, oh, you like him. Mm -hmm. Like, and then we get that, which I thought was like an amazing interaction where Elizabeth is describing the first time that she has to kill someone and how she just like goes home and goes to bed, which is like such a perfect encapsulation of like Elizabeth's ability to compartmentalize mm-hmm. all of this. That in an see, episode where, as we've discussed, her desire cannot be compartmentalized. Exactly, exactly. Which is why I think it's like such a fascinating to read to read the interaction between Elizabeth and Lucia through the lens of desire. I think illuminates some of the ways in which desire is like has worked in the past for Elizabeth or like the absence of it has worked and how it is no longer working in that way. Yeah. Because 
Elizabeth seems to want to fully compartmentalize desires and think she can and think that that thinks that that is the right way to go about the business of spying. Mm-hmm. And Lucia seems to be, you know, perhaps not so formally or cohesively offering a vision of, well, maybe there's actually room to have both, right? Maybe I can do the spy mission and follow desire in a, in a less compartmentalized way. Yeah. At least initially. And I mean, she's, and, and at the same time, as you pointed out when we were talking before the show, Danielle, is Lucia is at the same time thinking through what commitment to principles means or what yes. commitments to ideals mean. And as much as Elizabeth thinks they fully agree on those ideals and how the spy work reaches towards or enacts those ideals. Yeah. Lucia wants to say that, no, we actually have somewhat different understandings there. Or that, yeah, that we have different understandings and the implications of those different understandings means that we're going to go about this in different ways. And like in a, in a kind of interesting way, it, this, this dredges up some of the, some of the, the stuff that Claudia has said to Elizabeth, right? Like I think seeing Lucia as a kind of mirror Mm -hmm. through which Elizabeth, like Elizabeth's past actions are being reflected back to her. I think productive and and kind of fascinating because Elizabeth is sort of forced into this Claudia-like role Mm -hmm. where she's like attempting to like do the educating on the basis of her experience. And Lucia, much like Elizabeth vis-a-vis Claudia, like does not want a part of it, even though ultimately they want the same thing. And it's worth extending that parallel further as well, because not only is Elizabeth educating Lucia, she's also manipulating Lucia. Absolutely. And like the sex that Lucia and Carl have in the congressman's office, the way that Amy Romero is the uh, actress playing Lucia mm-hmm. plays it. She does not look like she wants to be having that sex in that place in that way with Carl. No, no, right? no, no, no. And so there's, not at all. and so again, there's the manipulation that also puts Elizabeth and Lucia on the same plane. Cause right. Both of them are arguably assaulted in this episode. Yeah. To bring it back to the Claudia of it all. Yeah. It like then becomes really interesting that Claudia is, is back in this episode. Mm-hmm. And I, there's a, a couple more things I think we want to get to in terms of, of Lucia, but I think like Claudia being this like weird pivot point, mm-hmm. like in thinking about their relationship and thinking about the, I don't want to go so far as to say like sacrifices. It's it's not Elizabeth making sacrifices. It's Elizabeth manipulating Lucia into the very kinds of sacrifices that Elizabeth has made her entire life. Right. right? And the idea that like, if you are, if you're in it for the ideals, then like, this is how it has to unfold. And Lucia is very much like, it does not have to unfold like that. And yet, She's still like, she says to Elizabeth, and I thought this was really this, it was, it was, you know, poignant that she was saying, I'm not ready to sleep with him. That's, you know, you don't have to do that right away. And Elizabeth's like, okay, but like, get on it essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then cut to, she gets on it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and it works and it works. Yeah. Elizabeth is right. Yeah. And it's not perhaps coincidental. Uh, and this is perhaps too big of a stretch. So you can tell me if that ends up being the case, but that reading of what Elizabeth convinces Lucia to do 
combined with the fact that as Carl is assaulting or having sex with Lucia in the congressman's office, mm-hmm. he looks up and the oh, camera lingers yeah. on the fucking Ronald Reagan portrait. And then that happens again where the camera is showing them both looking up at Reagan right <sighs> while the sex or assault is happening. And then afterwards, I forget who, which of the two says good night, Mr. President, as the camera shows the, shows the, uh, for the, I think it was again. him. That would make sense. I hope it was him. That would make sense. Um, at least nobody called him like the big Gipper or whatever the hell his <laughs> nickname was like in that scene. That's the only thing that would have made yeah. that worse. But like, I mean, I think one, it is a stretch, but I like it. So I'm going to like, I'm going to walk down this road with you. I think the... Good, the I, like, don't know where, I forgot what the road is, so please take us down the path. Well, it, it seems like the road is the this like the way in which endeavoring after one's ideals, at least in this episode, like is intimately intertwined with sex and desire. Right. And like the, like we can sit here and laugh slash cringe about the Reagan stuff from now until the cows come home. But I think the function that it serves, if we're reading this episode through the lens of desire, the function that it serves is a reminder that like Carl's got desires too, right? And and his ideals and those desires are like in a messy relationship with each other. Perfectly perfect way to say it. His, his desire includes desire for the nation, desire for patriotism, desire for, patriotism that then gets like affected through the Reagan portrait. And at the same time, the Reagan in any number of ways. (laughs) And to go back to the point you were making about Elizabeth, Elizabeth actually in this instance are both standing in for and or enacting a suppression of sexual agency or something like that. that's, That's at work as well. I think that's right. And I think like the, maybe the last point I'll make on this, like Reagan ideals, et cetera, et cetera stuff is to take a step away from Lucia and Carl just for a minute. And to like the thing that Oleg says to Stan Mm -hmm. is like, I respect someone, you know, we like, we have the same kind of deal. We just like, don't agree on, on the thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, which is just a different version of like, I respect someone who endeavors after their ideals, whose ideals structure their lives. And like, we'll talk, we'll get into this a little bit more a bit later, but like talk about someone who's like ideals and desires are in a messy relationship with one another, like Stan and arguably Oleg too. Oh, I I thought you were going to say Oleg first. So yes, you're right. Both of them. (laughs) So thus the show, and maybe this is one of the things that led the show to throw them up against one another. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that would make sense to me. But the the Reagan, I just like, I, I want to give the show props for like the most ridiculous way that we get this but it, with the like looking up at Reagan, like as one is about to orgasm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, come on, man. Mm-hmm. Let's take this opportunity to step away from Reagan to step back to, you know, the Soviet overlords Yes, and think a bit about Claudia. 
Indeed. And let's do so by thinking about the conversation between Claudia and Elizabeth at the very end of the episode. Perfect. Where they're considering the lyric op. Yeah. Which yeah. is an op, which is a partially on the books, partially off the books op that they are running. That Claudia has said, "Keep me out of it." Although we find out at the very end why she, one of the perhaps the primary reason she needs to be kept out of it, which has to do with desire, we should say. But before we even get there, Claudia says something like, "I don't care if I'm running somebody yeah. on the basis of ideology or on the basis of money. They're both okay for me." Elizabeth, on the other hand, is only wanting to run people on the basis of ideology, although she's been happy to manipulate people's financial situations as a method for running them in the past. Witness Stanford Prince, yeah, yeah, but she would much prefer to use ideology as the lever by which to like create an agent to create somebody that's doing things for her. And how do you read that difference between them? in relation to the desire circulations that you and I have been talking about for a while now. I think that like what's different between them is that for, I think for Elizabeth, that ideology is the only, is like the only, is the only true avenue to desire, Mm, right? It's the only true articulation of one's desires or, or like, uh, I keep wanting to say telos, but it feels wrong to talk about telos when we've been talking about circulation. Like that's like mixed metaphors. As you'll find out in the cave, everybody. (laughs) Don't worry. We're getting there. (laughs) Like we haven't been there since the beginning. Uh, Every time. Um, But, but so I think like, again, like ideology is the only real thing that that lever is connected to. The connection to money is, is, is false for her. It's yeah. problematic. That being the, a disconnect between Elizabeth and Claudia, I think is quite telling because not necessarily with regard to this particular mission, but with regard to the tension between them more generally, mm-hmm. perhaps one of the problems Elizabeth has with Claudia is like the enlarging of like what counts as correct or the right way to go. And yes. for Elizabeth, it's like, there's a very clear path and Claudia is not always on that path as evidenced by the fact that she's like, well, maybe it was my fault. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Fuck you, Claudia. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there, but I want to make oh, two, yeah. two points first before we turn to that one is yeah. I think the last thing you're saying was exactly correct in the sense that Elizabeth ascribes a certain purity that's ideological purity or like principle and normative purity to the action she undergates, she undertakes and money dirties that process. Right. Purity is the word that we could use without using telos. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that that's absolutely right. Ideology is the purest desire in some ways for her. Um, I think that that's absolutely right. And like, we have seen that we have seen ideology is the purest desire structure so much of Elizabeth's character throughout this series. But like, because we meet the, we meet Philip and Elizabeth when they're starting to explore their desire for one another, that what happens is like, we have always known Elizabeth as someone who wants that pure articulation, yes. but whose like access to it is always a little bit dirty or messy. 
And one of the people she thinks isn't pure enough has been Philip throughout most of their yeah. sham marriage together. And yeah. Sham marriage is perhaps too harsh, but at times it certainly has been a sham marriage. Yeah. Which I think we'll come back to in a minute. But just a minor point is that both of them are skeptical of blackmail as yes. the method by which to get an agent. Yeah. Because apparently, I don't know if like we could say that there's no desire there then or something like that. So maybe like some desire is necessary, even if they disagree on what it is. Okay, I think that, that, that that's right. That maybe it's not no desire, but it's like desire functioning in, in like not, in not a way that can be like controlled. It's unrulier. Exactly. There's the intentionality without the agency. Wow. Wow. <laughs> forthcoming Hanley forthcoming 2022 <laughs> almost like we've been in the cave the whole time as you were saying but to we're your point you made a couple minutes cave. ago before I diverted us uh, away from this bath <laughs> we find out at the very end of this Ugh. episode that Claudia's own desires may have been what led to the deaths of Emmett and Leanne and their daughter she thinks that perhaps she doesn't she doesn't really think this happened, but she recognizes it's a possibility. The fact that she met someone, as she says, ended up opening up to them and that that may have, and she doesn't think it actually happened again, but it may have led to Leanne and Emmett and their daughter Amelia's death. Here's what I have to say about that, and okay. I want to get into it more in Danielle Dossier. But here's what I have to say about that. It's like Elizabeth was fucking right about you to not trust you. That's it. Right? Like, all of this talk about, like, about knowing Elizabeth more than she knows herself and, like, and and seeing the ways in which Elizabeth has lost herself in the field, it's, like, in the same way that Lucia is a mirror for Elizabeth – Elizabeth is a mirror for Claudia, which is like, hello, do you know what a mark of losing yourself in the field is? Like finding someone and acting on those desires instead of those that are directed at your ideals. Strong do as I say, not as I do vibes, because Claudia is correct in her diagnosis of Elizabeth, mostly correct, even as she is also projecting her own shit onto Elizabeth to make that analysis in the first place one million percent but it's like it's just infuriating because i really don't like claudia (laughs) it's infuriating to you and perhaps this is also infuriating to you that she has a minuscule amount of like recognition or something with regards to this in two ways one is she tells elizabeth to investigate her if they discover through the Lyric situation that Lyric wasn't actually the reason that Leanne and Emmett and Amelia were killed. She says, investigate me, which is an admission of a kind, obviously. But then the key one is she tells Elizabeth, I was wrong about Philip. Here's what I have to say about that. Please, floor is yours. Do you know when you could have brought this up? (laughs) Perhaps before you made Elizabeth almost fuck that other guy and like manipulate another person, right? Like I, okay, you want to admit this? Great. But you know when you should have admitted it? When you thought that this was the possibility. Because you know that if Philip and Elizabeth did something like this and they realized that it was themselves and they didn't report it right away they would like 
be hung. You Claudia know, like, would have them killed. Literally. Or, or like taken, arrested, detained, and smuggled back to the Soviet Union to be hung. And it's, yeah, but it's, it's like, that's the infuriating part. And like, like you said, strong do as I say, not as I do vibes, but it's also like strong hypocritical vibes, you know, (laughs) like don't sit here and say like, it's about, it's about ideology. It's about the ideals. Money is okay. And and it's like, Ooh, but actually like not just ideology, not just money. Also like the sex I wanted to have. It's just like deeply, deeply infuriating. And, Danielle, Claudia also takes us to the main plot driver of this episode, (laughs) a main plot drive that has been frustrated by desire diverting us from a teleological path and arc. (laughs) So let's think about Lyric a little bit. Okay. It's about desire. It's about more than desire. Maybe let's work back to the closing scene where we see Lyric's desires more openly depicted. Sure. But one of the main characteristics of the Lyric plotline in this episode are that everyone is a mess as a result of the op against Lyric. Yeah. Elizabeth and Philip um, messes when it yeah. comes to Lyric, both publicly in their interactions with him, but then privately at home. Yeah. In total mess about it. Claudia in on her own Claudia in her relations with Philip and Elizabeth, total fucking mess about the Lyric op. Yeah. Kate seemingly in control with regards to Lyric, but also a mess when it comes to the Lyric situation. So what is it about Lyric on the level of plot or on broader dynamics and levels that so frustrates everybody's senses of selves or purpose or togetherness, do you think? I think that what it is, is that Lyric illustrates or reveals the like contingency of all of these plans right? Because he is someone who could like be, he is someone who could be run, who then could turn on yes. like Emmett and Leanne. I think like the revealing that, that contingency, the precariousness with which like they survive, it just, it brings us back to like Elizabeth's extreme paranoia early on, like the, 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 her being shaken in a number of episodes this, this season as a result of everything happening with Emmett and Leanne, just like the reality of that and the way the reality of that is connected to like contingency, contingency and precarity, I think is like, that's what's doing the shaking. I would agree with you. And there's a depiction of the kind of shifting power relationship between Philip and Elizabeth on the one hand, Lyric on the other within scenes or maybe throughout the episode as a whole, where it seems as if while Lyric is maybe kind of wrong footed in the initial meeting from drop, but Elizabeth in particular is terrified. She's like got her gun on her hip, like, you know, has pulled her skirt up and like ready to pull that out at any moment. But Lyric seems to come into more of a control of that situation over that initial meeting scenario, which has some great wigs, by the way, as I'm sure we'll probably discuss later. And then the need to simultaneously get as much info from Lyric as possible and then figure out whether or not he was indirectly the reason that Leanne and Emmett were killed or actually the reason he and Leanne and Emmett were killed and maybe he's lying to them. And then kill him, right? Like, 
he takes such prominence over shaping the actions and the contingencies of what all of the characters can do plot wise, which then has implications for their psychic states. Perhaps part of why this is like an addendum to our own discussion is because this seems to, for the most part, be the part of this episode that is absent desire. It is like an attempt to, it is an attempt to control. It is an attempt to like regain control. Um, And yet like at various turns, Larrick is frustrating that. Yes. I, I, However, I do want to say, like, I think the last scene with Larrick is interesting because, like, we get him, like, banging some dude in the in the, alleyway the back of a bar. Yeah. The fire escape, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, even though much of the interactions with Larrick are not structured through desire, desire is still sort of, like, at, uh, like, at the fingertips of of like that piece as well. Right. Right. The kind of desire that was the original motivation for Leanne and Emmett to attempt to blackmail Eric in the first place, right? That Larry's gay, right? Is the reason why they attempt to blackmail him. And then on a broader structural level, Mm -hmm. this is, while it's been set up throughout the entirety of this, you know, first five or six episodes, right? This is the episode that kind of will kick a more or less season long plot yeah. um, into another gear where it starts with Leanne and Emmett, which takes us to Lyric. And now is, you know, I feel fine saying this, Danielle, we're going to have several episodes that are essentially structured by the training of the Contras to send yeah. back to Nicaragua to illegally, you know, attack the Sandinistas who have taken power with the cat and mouse game with Larrick himself, with these questions about how safe or unsafe Philip and Elizabeth are doing. So, so not only does Larrick have this role of revealing the contingency or revealing the lack of power or lack of control that the characters have, so too does Larrick structure the narrative of the arc of the season. Structuring structure is a little bit of Bourdieu for Uh-oh. you, for oh, the no. real ones. Yes, <laughs> I'm not a real one there. Um, <laughs> no, um, I mean, that. just a, a last note, like, that makes sense because when we started, like, planning this episode, to me it was very clear that Lyric's not a, a candidate for minor character of the week because it doesn't feel like this is the last time we're going to see him. I would also say, like, I had forgotten about Lucia, um, though we liked her when she, when she was on I before. I think she might have been minor character of the week. I think so week. too. But the minute she came back, I was like, oh, okay. Like we're back to this. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So I'm ready for, I'm ready for that season long plot. Okay. And it's important. I think that the season long plot is about Nicaragua, not only because of Lucia, but also because of what Nicaragua represents to Claudia. Yeah. And to Elizabeth and yeah. to a lesser extent to Philip and obviously to Lucia herself. Right? Yeah. And that there seems to be an agreement among all of them that like this is the central mark of the true ideals, the true principles, the true ideologies that you and I have been discussing that so saturate this episode. Yeah. Those are all channeled through the idea of the Sandinista revolution for the characters in the show. That makes sense to me. And I'm, I'm excited to see, like, I'm excited to see that development and especially as it is tied to 
like the like the cashing in of these ideals. Yeah. And then maybe if we can try to kind of put one idea in to close this main discussion down, it is yeah. as much as this has been an episode that works through and works with and is raising questions about desire, it is also extremely hard to watch. As Absolutely. So yeah. many parts of it. And we'll get into even more of them we haven't even talked about when we get to some of the later segments. But to then make the perhaps obnoxious point about that, the fact that this is an episode that's about desire, but that is also so hard to watch and so much about death and so much about um, violence is to say that like maybe Eros and Thanatos were not so far away. Oh my God. I literally wrote down as we were going through this conversation, like to what extent does desire necessarily lead to violence, which I think is the like Eros Thanatos like question. Yeah. Sex drive, death drive. Are they that different? (laughs) <laughs> it's like the no <laughs> <laughs> alright I'm out of lifting no let's go to the segments yeah uh, first segment Danielle Dossier yes I think that we need more Danielle Claudia takes probably in the Dossier would oh be my, my guess God. I'm gonna do it quickly because I it feels like beating a dead horse but like here are my notes That's my second note for the episode how did they get in touch with Claudia I don't like it in all caps I just, like, I feel like this, and I texted you this, but I feel like Claudia in this episode just confirms all my suspicions about how terrible she is. And that's that. <laughs> Can I ask you a question, then, about yep. the, about Claudia and the dossier? Mm-hmm. Do you think we will find out that she bears some responsibility for the deaths of Emmett and Leanne and Amelia? That is a great question. I th- uh, Yes, because I think that... You were very generous in saying, like, maybe, like, maybe it's her fault and maybe, and she takes a little bit of credit. I think, like, the admission that she, like, lays all this out there for someone, even if that someone didn't do the killing, like, that makes Claudia complicit because she has gone against, like, the, the, like, her marching orders, which is don't tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. So I have, I have a Daniel Dossier question for you, but any other entries, actual or rejected, you'd like to offer? I mean, this is one that I think I'm going to reject, but like the vibes in the beginning are, my first note to myself is, are Philip and new handler Kate going to fuck? <laughs> but question. I think like ultimately I'm, I'm going to, I'll, I'll close that case in the dossier, but those I- were the vibes from the, from the jump. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about Kate here in a few minutes. So my question has to do with the opening of the episode, and it touches on something that you raised a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. So Oleg tells Stan that he wants the, sur- the surveillance logs yeah. because, as he says, I have my own needs and my own problems. Yeah. So in the Daniel dossier, what do you think those needs and problems are for which Oleg needs the surveillance logs or wants the surveillance logs? Well, like step one to go back to desire, Nina. Okay. He he wants. I think like he wants to manipulate Nina into sleeping with him. Okay. As like an immediate need, I think also like the way that I was reading that in a less facetious way was in order to in order to like climb the ladder, which we've seen him do already in this season. Like he needs he needs that information in order to do that. All right. Those are my thoughts, but like, let's check back in on Oleg and Stan in a couple of episodes. Cause like 
something is cooking here. I don't love it, but I also like cannot wait to see what it is. Okay. Thank you, Daniel Dossier. Episode six. We love it. Let's get into gloss. Please. I think like maybe the place to start in gloss, which doesn't necessarily fit exactly into the, our main discussion, is just talking a little bit about Kate Please. and her flat affect yeah, and her vodka order. <laughs> At 11 in the morning. It's a bar. Which Philip is, okay, <laughs> you know what? Kate's right about that. Yeah. But also I think part of Philip's thing is like, that's a very Russian order to make. Oh, right? yeah, It's yeah, just yeah. like a vodka just straight up at 11 in the morning. It was vodka. Look, did I take, have I, did I take shots with my host father in St. Petersburg at 11 in the morning once? Ooh. I sure did. I uh, don't know if I've ever taken a vodka shot in my life. I have <laughs> taken many. Oh, no, you know what? I have because in Israel, they sell these like, like uh, one shot things. That look like they are like ices with a real top. <laughs> and once it was like, I was living there and my friend Yehuda was visiting and my other friend Ronnie, we were like out and they sell them for like a couple of shekels, like very cheap at the corner stores. And we were like, should we try these? And I was just recently looking at pictures. They like popped up on Facebook and it's just like us like trying to drink these like basically to-go vodka shots, and it's (laughs) atrocious. So maybe moving from the ridiculous to the less ridiculous, what are your thoughts on Kate? What are you thinking about with regard to Kate? Yeah, a couple of things. One is that you above raised the question of, and rejected the question of, is Phil Phil going to have sex with Kate? I think the, what, and maybe this is why you rejected it, I think Philip recognizes or realizes and maybe unconsciously so in that bar conversation that he wants to or is going to or is able to run up on Kate a little yeah. bit. And I mean, obviously, yeah. there's this the, the plot of the episode is they are doing the Lyric mission, but not telling the center about all of it. So that's just yeah. like a thing that's happening. But yeah. I think there's a character moment of that for Philip where he... And we can see whether or not this is going to over or underestimate Kate as yeah. the season develops. But Philip thinks that he's actually the one that's doing the running of, of the handler as opposed to the other way around. And that first conversation, dynamic shift when we get to the second conversation. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think the, like, the Philip and Kate dynamic allows us to see both like what is wrong and what is working with regard to how Claudia runs them. Mm -hmm. And it, it gives us a better, or at least it gave me a better sense of like what the role of the handler is. Um, And I think like the fact that it shifts so dramatically from that first conversation in the bar to the second conversation in the park. And like it is, is something. And I think the piece of that, that was striking to me was Kate does not believe that somebody else wasn't involved in this, right? Whether she thinks Claudia is the one doing the running, but she does not believe that it was just like a thing that they figured out on their own. And I thought that that was really interesting. That's a good observation, Danielle, because it helps explain the shift and the power that Kate assumes in the second interaction that we see her in in this episode where they are walking around what I 
assuming it's Tompkins Square Park, maybe Stytown um, in New York City, and having a conversation where Kate, like, just openly lies to them or openly, like, gaslights them, to use the number of the phrases of the 2020s, in the sense that she says earlier, she said in the previous episode, she says now, nothing is more important than the safety of you and your kids or you and your family, but here do these other things that put you at heightened risk and your family at heightened risk. And Elizabeth actually points this out directly. And it's like, clearly there are things that are more important to the center than our safety. Yeah. And, and Kate doesn't like deny that. And I think like, I'm interested in this dynamic going forward. There's also this very meta moment from Kate (laughs) where she says something along the lines of, I think you understand how much this operation means to the Americans. And sure, she's talking about to the American government, to Reagan, to the CIA, to whatever. She's also talking about the show, The The Americans. So I thought that was a very funny moment to me. Yeah, I I hadn't picked up on that line before and I just laughed at it to myself. I didn't pick up on it, but I like love that you pointed it out because I love a meta moment. So I'll take it. And it touches on the way we ended our general discussion that indeed this operation of tracking down those who are training the Nicaragua or the Contras to go fight Nicaragua are, is indeed going to be an operation that's very important to the TV show, the Americans. There you go. Yeah. So I think also we want to talk a little bit, just for a minute, about Nina here. Yeah. There's not a ton of Nina in this episode, but the Nina that there is is pretty poignant. And there's a lot about Nina that happens before yeah. she gets to appear for about 45 seconds towards the end. Yeah, and I think she does a great job being angry at Stan. It's I'm having trouble within the show keeping track of like which pieces Nina knows and which pieces she doesn't, which I think is like exactly what the show is trying to induce. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated that. Yeah. And so we, the kind of plot dynamic that happens to her is that Stan once again wants to try the let's get, let's exfiltrate Nina, let's get her to safety, let's protect her gambit. Yeah. But to do so, Either he was told off screen or he makes up, and it's ambiguous which of these it's two, ambiguous. the requirement that she do a polygraph test to make sure that she hasn't lied in what she said to make sure that, like, she's a genuine agent or whatever. And this is after Nina. We, we like, cut to the scene, and the first thing I believe we hear is Nina saying, I knew I'd end up dead. Yeah. And then it gets into the argue and then Stan says, you know, there's this bureau requirement. You have to do the polygraph. And then Nina says, well, you don't trust me. I would never betray you. I read that as Stan making it up. And I like, also it's like, no, he doesn't trust you, but actually it's not because of you that he doesn't trust you. It's because of Oleg. Right. So like. Oleg and Gad. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Both of them. And then that brings us to, like, talking the, – the Gad part of all of this is, like, first of all, Gad's house, very weird vibes. Um, very, but, very weird. But, like – Well, I mean, well, we learn essentially that, like, he – when he, he fought in Vietnam, right, and married what we can presume as a Vietnamese woman, yes? Yeah. And then, like, they had a son who has passed away. 
Yeah, I, I think we get some of the details later on. Okay, okay. That was, like, how I read that scene. Yeah. And, there's, but a, like, there's a bit of, like, a shrine, a, like, memorial yeah. with um, with oranges, right? Right. They're kind of prominently displayed with some candles, like, on the mantle. Yeah, but, like, which, like, then is juxtaposed into this, like, pretty, which is, like, a pretty harsh conversation that Gad has with Stan. In a much more sterile room with, like, slightly uncomfortable formal furniture juxtaposed to, like, the warmth of this, like, memorial to the person who presumably has passed away. Yeah, and it is, it's just really fascinating because for so much of the series until now, Gad has been, like, really had stands back and, like, here he's like, I have to clean up your mess. Which then, like, when we, the, like, the Stan-Nina conversation gets thrown into relief as Stan, I think, trying to clean up his own mess. Correct. And making more of a mess. Absolutely. And so I want to come back to that particular point, but about the Stan-Gad conversation, there's mm-hmm. a... It's interesting the way that they staged this episode. It's like a therapy session, right? There is a yeah. therapist chair and then there is a couch that one could envision yep. in a fancy therapist's office. Yep. Except that Stan is in the therapist chair and Gad is in like the person being therapized is in yep. the like patient chair. But yep. it's Gad who is like doing the reading, who is doing the psychic evaluation yep. of Stan. So the dynamics are kind of all like screwed around a little bit. And I think, you know, Stan says something to the effect of like Nina is in over, uh, over her head. And then Gad points out, well, Stan, what if it's you who's in over his head? And that is, that is, I think the moment where the Paul, that's like the moment in the episode where the polygraph gambit like comes into play, I think for Stan. I think that that's right. I think that that's right. Because I think... And Gad's right, of course. (laughs) Gad is one million percent correct. And I was just going to say, I think, like, it's a a moment where Gad proves that, like... So Stan looks up to Gad, and it's a moment where Gad proves exactly why that that is the dynamic between them. Yes. And to your point that Stan, in trying to clean up his mess, makes the mess worse, is that the scene with Nina ends by her saying, I'm done. That's the way that she says to end the episode. Or the, the, excuse me, the, the way that she uh, ends the scene. Right. That's the way that that conversation ends. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I think it's worth, let's very just briefly highlight this, that there's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of page. She likes the youth group more than she likes volleyball. Philip is upset. Elizabeth's kind of upset. Conversation number two, Elizabeth seems to be a little more accommodating. And Paige gives the line that's now kind of characteristic. And we've talked about this several points throughout the season of I'm not a liar or something to that extent. And we've thoroughly discussed in other episodes the many layers to her her proclamations like that. Yeah, and I just think that, like, the softening of Elizabeth is interesting and I think worth, like, flagging to pay attention to as we keep going. Is it strategic or is it genuine? This is maybe yeah. a Daniel Dossier question. <laughs> I think that's the question. And I also think it's like, is her softening, like her starting to understand the ways in which desire might structure one's life and desire that's not only about one's ideals or ideology, but also about the like being with others, which seems to be the thing that's happening with Paige. And maybe Elizabeth is starting to read that. Yeah, that's a great point. 
you've got a whole list of camera shots for this episode, <laughs> so I'm just going to, like, clear the floor and let you run through them. Okay. I was watching this episode, and this is, I think, the third time I've watched The Americans, so, like, I'm able to pay attention to stuff I didn't catch the first couple of times around. Mm-hmm. And the thing that stuck out to me about this episode, Danielle, was... The cinematography of the Americans rarely has flourishes or rarely has things that are like a little bit off kilter in terms of the camera work. And when they do, it's often, I think we've noticed and have discussed, right, about depicting characters in a certain way, like especially through mirrors to demonstrate them. And there is a mirror in this episode, as you discussed, or like the spy craft itself. There's a little bit of a like house style for filming when spy things are happening. Right. But in this episode, there's a bunch of weirder blocking and weirder camera shots. And so let me just list a bunch of them. And then I want you to like, tell me whether you think there's any kind of purpose to these like different, but I think connected camera shots that are happening. Okay. We have the opening shot of the episode, which is focused on a rear view mirror of a car close by to where Philip, Elizabeth, and Claudia are meeting. Right. Stan's introduction to the episode as he is like going to meet Oleg are on his shoes as he's walking along the ground. We don't actually get Stan. We don't know it's Stan until many seconds into this. The door that Larrick walks through to get into the office, right? The scene opens, the camera is focused on the door that Larrick and then Philip and Elizabeth in costume or in disguise enter. There's stands, the exterior shot of his house. We've rarely seen the the exterior of the Beeman household to this extent. Obviously here they're depicting the red door that gives the episode title its name. But then there's this dinner scene that's incredibly claustrophobic. There's something about the way that this is like shot that is like overly bunching the characters together. Mm-hmm. There's the shot of Oleg is like a, going to be in the residentura, but it doesn't open on Oleg. It opens on the Lenin yeah. The famous Lenin portrait. And then Oleg walks in in the exact same pose as Lenin. There's Philip and Kate at the bar, which is just a fucking bizarrely filmed and blocked scene. And I don't even know how to describe it more than that. Then finally, there's the Philip Clark mirror scene that you mentioned. And the shot that that scene ends on is Elizabeth is mostly naked, face down on the bed. The camera is looking down on her, but the camera is like above the ceiling fan. So you can see the ceiling fan blades. So all of this together, there's a way in which the camera is like messing around with objects as opposed to characters in a certain Mm -hmm. way in this episode. And I'm wondering if you think there's kind of anything for us to read in response to these, or maybe I'm just making stuff up and this is like not actually a worthwhile observation. You tell me. So I'm never going to say that to you because like I have said to you multiple times, maybe not on air, but definitely have said to you, like I could sell snake oil to a snake oil salesman. Like I am happy to walk down this like bonkers road with you. Um, I think the way, so like I can always like find the meaning. In fact, it is a, it is a hallmark of my work sometimes for better and more times for worse. Not true. 
Um, but I think that I think a couple of things are going on. If we're, if we're to take all these together, I think one of the things that ties them together is the, like, is the discomfort or the shaking that the, that the, like the, the visuals here, the, the perspectives, the shots, the, like the interjection of various objects, right? Like what that does is it, is it alters or shakes or makes challenging to sort of like read head on or just like read in a straightforward way. And I think like the claustrophobia that you're, that you're pointing out, which I would like, I would say like a rear view mirror shot, the, the door and then the, the dinner scene. I, I found the, the, like the Clark mirror and then the ceiling fan shot also to be claustrophobic as like, things are starting to collapse in the other thing that I would just, so I think like there's certain there, the way in which the aesthetics are functioning here to amplify or, or like extend the other dynamics that we're reading in and through this episode, I think is important. The other thing I would just say, just to like add on to your analysis is that, the shot with Elizabeth on bed on the bed with the ceiling fan has a sister shot at the beginning where we get the overhead of Elizabeth just like when she's lying face down naked yeah. on the bed yeah. with no ceiling fan, mm-hmm. right? So so like and the dynamic between Elizabeth and Philip has shifted. So like and there are these like there are these obstacles or walls, right? So I think like the aesthetics are doing uh are have a function there. The snake oil salesman just bought eight gar- eight, ugh, eight cartons of snake oil. <laughs> Please, can I have my snake oil. Can I make two obnoxious points about this? Obviously, yes. Okay, so one is that the way that the camera is functioning this episode and all of those shots that I just listed makes one think or me think that I'm watching a Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul episode. I literally have no idea what that means. And also I don't care. Fair. Um, <laughs> and then secondly is that, I mean, we should give a shout out. Of course, we mentioned her at the top of the show, but to the director of this episode, Charlotte Zeeling, uh, who's a Danish uh, director, mostly of TV, who like was in some of the famous like quote unquote Nordic noir. She directed a number of like major apparently episodes in like the unit one, the killing the bridge, like all these Danish or like other Nordic productions. And I mean, I've watched all of the original version of The Bridge, and I was too too far too far ago to remember what the camera was doing in that episode, but or in those uh, in that show, I should say. But Charlotte Sealing brought some interesting views, some interesting looks to the Americans for this episode. We love we love it, even though I have no idea, and I also don't care what Nordic norm means. <laughs> I did like the camera angles, and I appreciate you for highlighting them. Thank you. Let's I'm get not, into Barb nostalgia. Sure about that. <laughs> Let's get into Bar Nostalgia for the Unremembered 80s. Uh, not a ton of stuff, but some, like, pretty solid 80s refs. I would say the one that jumped out to me is the Animal House, like, movie. You, gotta, you love to see a, a Belushi reference. Matthew and Sandy love Animal House. Stan's Animal like, House. I don't understand what's happening. And, and, like, just, you know what, Stan? You're missing out. Like, get it together. It's a red door. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> um, also, the other thing that I just like, I cracked up was like when 
the dude in the office is a mansplaining a computerization of records to Stan. Yeah. I was like, this is the most 80s thing that's happened in this show to date. It's true. He's really pumped about it. Really, so, really um, pumped about it. Stan's like, shit, this is going to make it harder for me to steal the surveillance logs to give to yeah. Oliad. But, and he gets explained to, um, text-splained to. And this is paired with something that will become more important as the lyric stuff intensifies as well. With okay. ARPANET, right? So this is, I believe, the successor to DARPA, right? So the kind of early okay. days of the internet. And this is like part of the treasure trove of documents that Elizabeth finds in the congressman's office. Yeah. Makes its way to the residentura. And we find out, we discover that there is something that Oleg and Arkady are cooperating on and working on together. Very few hints about it though. Very few hints. Yeah. But Oleg really, really psyched about learning about the fucking ARPANET. He says, like, this is the future. Arkady's like, what is this? And Oleg says, it's the future. Like, all right, Oleg, we'll take it. Yeah. Paige has a Rick Springfield poster prominently displayed in her bedroom. I miss that. It's like Rick Springfield is like the Harry Styles of the 80s, right? Wow, that's so <laughs> mean to Harry Styles. I kidding. can't believe you just said that. I'm going to tell him. I'm sliding into his DMs now. Please, please. <laughs> on your behalf. By the way, um, also this episode has so many '80s wigs. So many wigs, and like good in the '80s sense. Like Elizabeth's wig in the like interrogation of Larrick yeah. is just like so '80s. One of the best, be- actual best, not just '80s best wigs this season. Uh, fully agree. Fully agree. Philip's got a turtleneck yet again, of a different turtleneck in the of kitchen. Yeah. Listen, there's like, there isn't a, I mean, we could also talk about like the Lennon and the, and the Reagan of it all. We've talked enough about that. There's not a ton of 80s stuff, but the stuff that's in this episode is very solid. And Larrick does say on the, to make one more Reagan point, um, that finally we have a president who oh can my handle God. them. I felt angry about that statement. <laughs> Especially when it's backed up later by the uh, orgasming to Reagan by by our minor character of the week. I didn't realize that was what was happening. Uh, what a you're what a professional. What a professional. <laughs> it just comes organically from, you know, the recesses of my <laughs> fucked up mind. Okay. Danielle, who's the minor character of the week this week? It is Carl, Carl. Nick Bailey, Carl R.I.P. Yeah. Real flex moving from cocaine on the desk to like cooking some heroin yeah. in his living room. Yeah. We didn't know him for a long time, but he was an important person in this episode, in an earlier episode. Yeah. Carl, minor character of the week. He, he unlocks, you know, he, uh, he unlocks what sounds like is going to be a major set of plot points going forward. So we got to give him credit for that. Yeah. And the, his death scene is the hardest maybe to watch of all the hard things to watch in this episode. Totally. Um, just like very brutally depicted whatever it was Lucia used to drug him. Um, yeah. And also just, there's so much happening in that scene between the two of them. Oh my God. Um, in some ways, a little bit more Lucia oriented than Carl oriented, obviously, um, because yeah. he's killed in this episode. Right. But like, he's fondly like remembering his mom, right. Doris. And once Lucia to meet Doris, as he tells her, you know, five, not even five minutes before she 
murders him, right? Or drugs him, poisons him, whatever. He does have this line about politics is a game, right? Yeah. It's um, like, ooh, you're about to die for this game. Yeah. And I mean, so Lucia, like, playfully gets him to go get her a glass of cold water, right? Drugs, you know, add something to the heroin that he's about yeah. to shoot up. Tells him, I like to watch, which is like, mindfuck of a line um, in various ways. They don't love it. And then says, dance with me, right? And like, I know. As he is both, as the heroin and the poison, whatever has been, you know, like adulterated, the heroin start to hit him. They're like oddly dancing. It's just, I mean, to like only be in here for, you know, a couple seconds early on in the season and then, you know, two scenes here in this episode. Nick Bailey is Carl, quite the character, quite the minor character. Yeah, we thank you for your service. Sure. Um, okay, let's let's get into the cave. Yeah, we've got a multifaceted, multi-layered cave. Danielle's kicking us off. Yeah, so we are taking one of our shared favorites, I would say, Sarah Ahmed into the cave. Yeah. Both John and I have written extensively engaging sure uh, her work. In fact, I am still writing, thinking with Sarah Ahmed, but I I think the thing that is that makes the most sense for us to think about with Sarah Ahmed is that, so she has written extensively on, um, on emotions, on affect, and in particular on the way in which emotions and affect circulate and sort of pushing us to think about how the, how emotions and affects move bodies as opposed to our like housed within bodies, which is oftentimes how we're meant to think about emotions. Um, and so for Ahmed, this idea that like that emotions circulate amongst bodies, objects, structures, um, and they impact them and they generate effects that then orient bodies and collectivities. I feel like there's a lot of that happening with regard to desire in this episode, which is kind of where we started this piece. So I think that idea of not only the idea of circulation, but in particular, the circulation of emotions and how that has all of these sort of like rippling functions. Yeah. But like, I think that that is that to me, that's sort of like the key thing to take away from, from Ahmed in the cave for this episode. Yeah, I would agree. That's a very helpful overview of Ahmed. And I think one of the reasons that she's our way into the cave this week is because the way that you and I think or talk about desire, whether academically or in a pop culture or TV podcast <laughs> are, is itself so deeply rooted in her work. Absolutely. And I think that it's for us, that question of like the question of desire is already the minute we say it linked to the idea of circulation, which is then sort of like comes back on itself. And I think we see that, that sort of that motion coming back again and again and, and rippling out through the various different pairs and interactions we see in this episode. And thus the entire general discussion was also a Sarah Ahmed goes to the cave with us section, just a little more indirectly. And I think as we were talking about who to go into the cave with this week, Danielle, I think another set of thinkers that occupied us and, and potentially occupy us in relation to Sarah Ahmed herself is, and you know, we like 
are going to probably save some of the more specific figures for later on in our career as podcasters. But like, just to make a couple generic, like Frankfurt school points, right? So here, one is thinking Herbert Marcuse here. One is thinking Eric Fromm, um, actually a little bit less Adorno and Horkheimer, I would say for these particular points that we're interested in. Um, Those will come back. I'm sure. I'm sure they will. They might come back next week as I think about who our guest is going to be. Actually, (laughs) now that I'd say that. Um, But anyway, you know, but one of the questions that preoccupies the Frankfurt School is the way that is, and this is what here I may be thinking about Marcuse most of all, is how does desire get sublimated, right? How does desire get uh, read into or transferred into or kind of how does society structure the sublimation of desire to something like ideology or kind of very impoverished as he was, as Marcuse would say, like one dimensional uh, mode of thinking. How does desire in a somewhat more Freudian sense or psychoanalytic sense get channeled or connected through or into money? And then what are the effects of all of these things? So as we were discussing earlier, you know, whether in some ways the Elizabeth Lucia and then Elizabeth Claudia conversations in particular, this question of how does desire get attached to or run through various forms of objects or frameworks or ideologies is also, I think, central to the way we're understanding this episode. I think that that's right. And I think like, first, a more minor point, I think like these are thinkers and ideas that that Ahmed herself is is sort of in conversation with. And I think I really appreciate the way that you sort of drew together like desire, ideology and money, because I think that's like, that's where this episode ends. Sure. Right. It's, it's bringing those things together. And in some ways that is the set of, of like objects or ideas that we like consistently come back to throughout the series. Yeah. Haunting all of this, Danielle, is one other figure that we should at least mention, and that's Uncle Carl, Marx himself. Marx himself. Yeah, <laughs> who obviously is an, is, is, is an er-thinker for the Frankfurt School, but also I think you and I are in full agreement on this, that even if others don't always recognize it, Sarah Ahmed, a great thinker, great like reworker and reimaginer of Karl Marx. One million percent. Others definitely miss that because they're not as awesome as we are. (laughs) Um, No, but I think like that the, you know, the, the ideas of Ahmed's that we're, we're drawing upon here come back to that idea of affective circulation and affective economy. And like that is incredibly indebted to thinking with and and against Marx. And I think that like, Something that Ahmed is helpful in reminding us is that the, whether it be thinkers from the Frankfurt School or Marx, like that these thinkers might offer us helpful terminology, helpful vocabulary, helpful like ideas to think, to think about, but we don't have to accept them whole hog. We can rework, like reconstitute and, and, and play with them. And I think like the best versions of the cave for me are when we get to play with them. And I think Ahmed is a, is a good vehicle through which to do that. Absolutely. Go read the cultural politics of emotion and note how often Marx pops up in the way that said Ahmed is reworking Marx. Listen, I think that first of all, I think Ahmed gets to leave the cave and hang with us. She's in charge about yeah, up, up, in up outside charge. of the cave. Like fuck all the other people that we took back out of the she's cave with us. Literally in charge. She, 
Like, she is our Urtex. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know what? It's actually legitimately true that Sarah is the Urtex of our initial friendship. Yeah, like, fully. <laughs> so, like, helping Sarah get out of the cave, because we don't want to leave her down Absolutely there not. with the likes of Hobbs and Plato. <laughs> and Schmidt. <laughs> It's like the paradigm of who is like stuck in the cave forever. Oh my god, I forgot that you made me talk about Schmidt on the cave. <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> so right now, but with that, I think we have come to the end of this episode. Uh, we did it. We did it. So up next in the feed, we've got um, season one, episode one of Moon Knight. Brand new show. I've yet to watch the first episode, so I have literally no idea what I'm getting myself into. Except that there's many Oscar Isaacs involved. So many Oscar Isaacs, um, the goldfish problem. And then, so that'll drop on Tuesday. And then, like usual, the next episode of The American, season two, episode seven, ARPANET, uh, with a special guest. Yes. Um, Who's going to unlock once and for all the riddle, I think, of borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered 80s. Thank God. That will drop next Thursday. Um, thank you so much for thinking with us and really thinking with Sarah Ahmed. Like, let's be honest. Like, she's the, she's the goat of the episode. For sure. (laughs) Um, and we will see you next time on Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball. Lyric? Okay, I've totally botched this whole thing, so I just want to start this intro to this. Okay. Song.